Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilan. I'm director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is sponsoring today's forum to mark the publication by Cato of a new book by Tim Sandifer, uh, The Right to Earn a Living, Economic Freedom and the Law. Uh, quite fortuitously, Cato uh, is also releasing today, uh, together with uh, Canada's Fraser Institute, the 2010 Annual Report on Economic Freedom and the World. Uh, and the report this year shows, unfortunately, that economic freedom around the world fell for the first time uh, in uh, decades. Um, in this year's index, uh, Hong Kong retains its uh, highest rating for economic freedom, but the uh, countries that follow in the top ten are Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland, Chile, the U.S., number six, uh, which it used to be number three in these ratings, um, Canada, Australia, Mauritius, and the United Kingdom. Um, none of that, uh, at least as it pertains to the U.S., will be news to our guests today. Uh, in his new book, Tim Sandifer offers a wide-ranging discussion, starting with the fundamental point that uh, the right to earn a living and enjoy the fruits of one's labor is a fundamental human right guaranteed by the Constitution. He goes on, however, to show how government now intrudes on this right in countless ways, uh, imposing unnecessary training requirements on workers, forbidding businesses from lowering their prices, confiscating wealth, rewriting contracts, and fostering frivolous lawsuits against business owners. Um, and he details the fascinating story of the Constitution's protections for economic freedom, describing some of the remarkable cases in which he himself has helped defend entrepreneurs from intrusive government. This is, let me note, the first of three uh, books that uh, Cato is publishing or co-publishing over the next several months. Um, on the ground, uh, on the general theme of economic liberty and its demise due to the rise of the progressive era. Uh, in January, we'll be publishing David Mayer's book on liberty of contract, and in, Gen and in uh, the spring, Cato, along with the University of Chicago, will be co-publishing David Bernstein's new book uh, entitled Rehabilitating Lochner. All right, let's turn to today's forum, then, uh, and to the book we celebrate today. Uh, after I introduce Tim, he'll uh, discuss the book for about 30 minutes. I'll then introduce each of the two other guests today uh, before, uh, who will offer comments uh, for about 10 to 15 minutes each, following which we'll have questions from the audience, and then we'll uh, have uh, lunch upstairs. Tim Sandifer is uh, principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, he is a graduate of uh, Hillsdale College and the Chapman University School of Law, after which his career has taken off uh, meteorically. Uh, he is a lead attorney in the Foundation's Economic Liberty Project. He works uh, to protect businesses against abusive government regulation. He's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and an adjunct professor at the McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento. In February 2006, he became one of the youngest attorneys ever featured uh, on the cover of California Liber uh, Lawyer magazine. He's a prolific writer. He's the author of Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century America, which we published here at Cato uh, back in uh, 2006, I believe. Um, 
He is uh, the author of over 40 scholarly articles on subjects ranging from eminent domain and economic liberty to copyright, evolution, and creationism, and the legal issues of slavery in the Civil War. His articles have appeared in National Review, in fact, in the current issue of National Review, Liberty, the Claremont Review Books, Forbes Online, San Francisco Chronicle, Regulation, Washington Times, and elsewhere. He's a frequent guest on radio and television programs. Um, he has been on the Jim Lehrer NewsHour, NPR's This American Life, and so on and so forth. Please welcome Tim Sandifer. Thank you very much. about that. <clears throat> uh, excuse me about that. Um, I just, I guess I get really excited when I'm talking about economic freedom, you know. I, um... uh, economic liberty is a fundamental inalienable human right and one that is deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. And uh, I think everybody in this room should get excited talking about economic liberty because it's something that we very often take for granted and yet is the key not only to American prosperity but to what we refer to when we're talking about the American dream. Let me, let me start by talking about a case that I worked on. I'm going to... My name is Tim Sandifer. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. Uh, economic liberty is a central part of what we talk about when we refer to the American dream. And I want to talk about a case that I'm working on right now in Missouri, where I represent a man named Mike Muni. Uh, Mr. Muni runs a moving company called ABC Quality Movers. And he has a federal license to move people and goods across state lines. Because, uh, you know, it goes from St. Louis over across the river. And he has a state license that allows him to move people's products and, 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 uh, and household items throughout the city of St. Louis. But he's not allowed to move people within the rest of the state of Missouri until he first gets permission from all of the state's existing moving businesses. Now, this is a law that strikes you all as totally absurd, that you would have to get permission from your own competitors, and yet this is how every major metropolitan area in the country regulates the taxicab industry. And in fact, most states have laws on the books like this that regulate various kinds of industries. Uh, early, just early last year, uh, Pacific Legal Foundation filed a lawsuit challenging an Oregon law that also applied to the moving business. I'm glad to say we won that case, and the state of Oregon ended up repealing that licensing restriction. But the right to go into business running a moving company or, or a furniture store or offering your services as a music teacher or as a tour guide or something, these are 
elements of that liberty which the Constitution of the United States was written in part to protect. This right is protected under the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause, the Due Process Clause, and other provisions of the Constitution. And if you look back in the history of the Constitution, America's founders and the, the re-founders of the 19th century said over and over again that this right to earn a living was central to what they had in mind. And yet, today, most lawyers and law professors, and certainly many judges, regard this right as trivial, as unimportant, or even as laughable in the courts of the United States today. This law has its roots in the American, uh, Anglo-American common law tradition, a, a tradition uh, sometimes called the Whig anti-monopoly tradition. And this, uh, one of my favorite cases to talk about in this context is an early 17th century case called the case of the upholsterers. Now, in England at the time, you couldn't practice the trade of upholstery unless you first had permission from the upholsterer's guild. You had to go through their training program and get basically a certificate as a licensed upholsterer. And this was brought up uh, uh, in court because a man wanted to practice the trade of upholstery and went up to the English version of the Supreme Court. And the court struck this law down as a violation of the law of the land provision of the Magna Carta. My, one of my heroes, one of my favorite just, judges of all time, Sir Edward Cook, said this law was, was a violation of the right to earn a living as protected by the, this provision of, the, of Magna Carta that said you can't be deprived of liberty except by the law of the land. What does law of the land mean? Well, it means you can only be deprived of your freedom pursuant to a general rule that protects the general public, right? Government can deprive you of your freedom legitimately uh, if it's, what it's doing is, is protecting the general public from fraud or from dangerous practices or something like that, right? But it can't do it arbitrarily. It can't do it in order to promote the interests of a private interest group, the king's best friend or something, right? So there was a case called the case of the monopolies in which there was a royal monopoly on the making and selling of playing cards. This is 1602. You couldn't make or sell playing cards except the, the people who owned this monopoly. And a guy went and made and sold playing cards, and he was brought up on charges, and the English Supreme Court found this unconstitutional, Court of King's Bench as a violation of the liberty of the subject to earn a living in whatsoever trade he pleases. So when the case of the upholsterers came up in front of Lord Cook, of course the upholsterers said, well, this law is important, you know. And of course they made the same arguments that, that these trade guilds made every time. They said, well, it protects the general public. From what? Well, you might sit down in a chair and it would be badly upholstered. Right? So we need this licensing requirement on the books in order to make sure that people who practice a trade of upholstery know what they're doing. And Lord Cook said, no, no, this is ridiculous. He said, no skill there is in this, for a man might learn it in six hours. Right? And even better, he said, unskillfulness is sufficient punishment. Right? The, if you're not good at upholstery, people won't buy upholstery from you. That is sufficient punishment. There's no reason for the government to be involved in this connection. And Lord Cook and the other judges that were associated with him in the, in the early 17th century wrote several decisions like this that articulated this anti-monopoly tradition protecting individuals' economic liberties that was handed on to the American founders because Lord Cook, in his retirement, wrote the textbook that all law students read, the Cook's Institutes, Jefferson and Adams and all of the rest, read this textbook because that was the only book available before uh, William Blackstone came in. 
And so they imbibed this idea of the anti-monopoly tradition, and they wrote it into the Constitution in several provisions. The, the law of the land provision came to be uh, known by its synonymous phrase, due process of law, the due process of law clause that's in the original Constitution in the, in the Fourth Amendment and then in the Fourteenth Amendment that was enacted after the Civil War. And this provision says you cannot be deprived of your liberty without due process of law. Well, what does that mean? Let's suppose that Congress were to pass a law that said that Scientology is now the official religion of the United States and everybody has to go to the Scientology church. And one weekend you're just laying there in bed sleeping in early and the, 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 the police officer shows up at your door. Why aren't you in church? You say, well, I, I don't have to be in church. He says, well, Congress passed this law. And you would say, no, you didn't. No, Congress did not pass a law. Congress has no power to make law on this subject. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So whatever Congress did, you can call it a resolution, you can call it a pronouncement, you can call it what you like, but you can't call it a law because Congress has no authority to make law on this subject. And therefore, for the police officer to arrest you under this thing and take you to jail would be to deprive you of liberty without due process of law. Right? That's the theory that has nowadays come to be known as substantive due process. You all with me on that? Okay. Now, that's if the provision uh, is re with regard to an explicit limit on government. Are there also implicit limits on what government can do? So imagine that you own a bank, right? And you're afraid that somebody's going to come in and rob your bank. You hire a guard, right? The guard stands in the corner of your bank with his badge and his gun, and now your problem is solved except that you have a new problem. Now there's a guy in your bank with a gun, right? And he could very well take out the gun and rob the bank himself. And when he does that, you say, wait a minute, you're my bank guard. You're not supposed to be robbing the bank. He would say, where's that in the contract? You didn't put that in the contract. You didn't say I couldn't rob the bank. And you would say, well, duh. The whole reason I hired a bank guard was to protect myself from being robbed, right? That is the same theory that was applied by James Madison in the Federalist Papers when he talks about the role of government in Federalist 51. He says, your first job is to make a government that will protect people from being injured by one another, but your second job is to make sure that the government will protect people from the government itself. And you do this in a variety of ways, right? You have checks and balances. You have judicial review. You have a bill of rights that takes certain things off the table entirely. The role of the government is to protect individual rights. We know that from the Declaration of Independence. If government becomes abusive and uses its coercive powers to enrich itself or to enrich the, the, the government's cronies at your expense, then it's essentially like the bank guard robbing the bank. It's violating the very purpose of having a government, right? And therefore, it deprives you of due process of law, just like the example with Congress making a nationwide uh, established church. Even though there may not be a specific constitutional provision that says government can't do this, we know that the purpose of government is to protect our liberties, to protect our liberty and, and prohibit it from being violated without due process of law. Right? Now, these ideas, this idea of what now we call substantive due process, I hate that term, because it was invented in, in the 1940s by uh, New Deal propagandists as a way of ridiculing the idea of limited government and protected individual rights. But this idea of substantive due process we find throughout the 19th century as courts strike down laws that are implemented simply to protect established companies 
or for, to protect those that the government has just arbitrarily decided to favor, right? What is law? Law is the opposite of arbitrariness. If the government violates your rights arbitrarily, that is, simply because it wants to, or simply because it has exercised the political will to do so, then it has violated your right to due process of law. Now, of course, the Privileges or Immunities Clause that I mentioned before, the Privileges or Immunities Clause was uh, essentially erased from the Constitution in the 1873 slaughterhouse cases. This was the first U.S. Supreme Court case to interpret the 14th Amendment. And what happened was in 1868, the Constitution was amended by the uh, anti-slavery forces who now had won the war and were now in charge of Congress and now had the opportunity to constitutionalize their theory that the Constitution of the United States applied to everybody, that everybody in America had certain inalienable rights, and that states must be required to respect those rights. And they did it through the 14th Amendment that said every person born and naturalized in the United States is a citizen of the United States and has certain rights because they're a citizen of the United States. And those rights cannot be taken away by states. That's the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And then the Due Process Clause says, you can't be, again, you cannot be deprived of liberty without due process of law by states. Well, unfortunately, that same year, the state of Louisiana creates a monopoly in the butchering industry. It says if you want to butcher cattle in the New Orleans area, you have to do it at one privately owned butcher shop called the Crescent City Livestock Landing and Slaughtering Company that just so happens to be owned by best friends of the state legislature. Imagine that. Right? Now, you'd have to imagine that the state of California passed a law saying everybody uh, who owns a car in Los Angeles County must have the car repaired at one privately owned garage, right? It would put all of the other garages out of business overnight. So hundreds of butchers were put out of business, and they filed lawsuits that were all accumulated as one. It came to be known as the slaughterhouse cases. And, in a, and their argument, what they said was, we have the right to earn a living. It's protected by 275 years of the Anglo-American common law. It is one of the privileges or immunities of citizens of all the United States, and the state of Louisiana is depriving us of that freedom through this monopoly. And they pointed to the Anglo-American common law tradition. And the Supreme Court in a 5-4 to four decision said, eh, no, the Privileges or Immunities Clause only protects certain rights like traveling on the high seas or taking a trip to Washington, D.C., things that obviously the authors of the 14th Amendment did not have in mind. And unfortunately, since that time until the present day, the Supreme Court has never enforced the Privileges or Immunities Clause with a couple minor exceptions. So with that clause now removed from the Constitution, we're left with the Due Process Clause. And fortunately for us all, throughout the 19th century, the Supreme Court enforced the Due Process Clause in ways that protected economic liberty. Uh, a, a great example of this is Loan Association versus Topeka. I love this case. I love Loan Association. This is a case where the question was, can the government take taxpayer money and buy bonds in a privately owned railroad? And the Supreme Court said no. Because all you're doing is taking property from one person and giving it to another. And that's not what government exists to do. It's arbitrary. It doesn't benefit the general public. It's simply taking wealth from those who don't have political influence and giving it to people who do have political influence. In fact, the court says this is not a law. It is a decree under legislative forms. It's a substantive due process theory, right? But... As time went on, this approach to the Constitution continued to be criticized and attacked by members of the so-called progressive movement. Now, the progressives were a group of intellectuals beginning in about the end of the 19th century who had radical new ideas for how government ought to work. 
Basically, they had four big ideas. The first one was rights are just permissions. The founders thought that we all have certain inalienable rights because we're human. The progressives said, no, no. Rights are permissions that government gives to you for government's purposes. For example, freedom of speech. Many lawyers and law professors today will say freedom of speech comes out of Justice Holmes's dissent in the case of Abrams versus United States, very famous dissenting opinion where he uses the phrase marketplace of ideas. When you actually read that decision, he starts it out by saying persecution seems perfectly logical to me. He then goes on to say, but we don't persecute people because it's good for society to have a debate. So we allow people the freedom to discuss things. But we, of course, can withdraw that freedom if we choose to do so. And, and of course, he also wrote Shank versus United States that said you can throw people in jail uh, for, for expressing themselves. Right? In Shank, that's where he uses the phrase, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Right? Anybody remember what Mr. Shank was doing that he got arrested for? He was handing out pamphlets on how not to be drafted into the army. Oh, that's just like yelling fire in a crowded theater, right? Okay, the second great progressive idea was government exists to make society nice. Now, the founders didn't think so. The founders said government exists to protect individual rights. Jefferson said the sum of good government is one that will restrain men from injuring one another and leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. But not for the progressives. No, no, the progressives believed that government exists to make the kind of society we want to live in. And so they came up with all these radical new ideas for improving society through government. Segregation, eugenics, zoning. What was zoning originally intended to do? To keep racial minorities out of white neighborhoods, right? In fact, the the progressives were the first to use the phrase, uh, to use the word blighted when referring to a neighborhood. Because the progressives envisioned government that way. Government was like a gardener. Right? Blight is a plant disease. right? And they applied it to neighborhoods because, in their view, government was a gardener that went around and pruned the plant or, or watered the plant or whatever to shape society into the kind of shape we wanted to see. Right? That was the second great progressive idea. The third great progressive idea was, uh, was judicial restraint. Judicial restraint is the idea that when the legislature decides to violate your rights, courts should do nothing about it. Unfortunately, a lot of my conservative friends have adopted this idea that that courts should just be in the business of stepping back and letting the legislature do what it wants. You want a great example of judicial restraint? It's Kelo versus New London. The government decides to steal somebody's house and give it to a private developer. The court says, we're not going to do anything about it. Or Korematsu versus United States. The government decides to imprison the Japanese Americans in prison camps, and the court says, well, whatever. That's judicial restraint. Buck versus Bell, another great Oliver Wendell Holmes classic where the Supreme Court said it was okay to force women to undergo sterilization operations without their consent. Right? That's, that's judicial restraint. And then the fourth great progressive idea was the living constitution. The constitution bends and stretches to meet the changing needs of the day. It doesn't mean today what it meant yesterday. It means whatever the legal elite thinks it means. That was the, that was the fourth great progressive idea. Now these ideas, judicial restraint, the living constitution, Rights are just permissions. Government makes society nice. Those ideas were mostly in dissenting opinions at first, right? Holmes dissented in the Lochner case. Brandeis was writing these dissents. In fact, Brandeis in one of his dissents really encapsulates progressivism nicely when he says, property and other rights of the individual must be remolded from time to time to meet the changing needs of society. I love that word remolded. What a great euphemism for violated, right? Right? If it can be remolded, it's not a right. (laughs) 
Right? Oh, the government wasn't, wasn't violating Suzette Kilo's ho- uh, rights when it took her house to give to a private developer. No, no, it was remolding her rights. Right? Government wasn't violating your rights when it censors you. It's just remolding your right to speak in the interests of society. The government isn't violating your rights when it tells you you have to get permission from your own competitor before you can go into business. It's just remolding your rights to serve society's needs. Now, in these ideas, as I said, were mostly in dissenting opinions. In fact, in 1932, there was a great case called um, New State Ice Company versus Liebman, and I love this case. So New State Ice involved an Oklahoma law that said if you wanted to go into the ice delivery business, you first had to get permission from the ice delivery business board, which was made up, surprise, surprise, of members of the existing ice delivery companies. And that was struck down as unconstitutional in a decision by one of my great heroes, George Sutherland. And Justice Sutherland says, this does not protect the public. It is an arbitrary act. It is an act that simply exists to benefit the politically well-connected. It has no connection to public health and safety. And it deprives people of the right to earn a living and is unconstitutional. Now, Justice Brandeis wrote a dissenting opinion in that case that everybody knows. In that dissenting opinion, he said that states act as laboratories of democracy to experiment with new social forms and economic legislation. And everybody quotes Brandeis's dissenting opinion in that case without noticing that Justice Sutherland has a, has a great response to that in the majority opinion in that case when he says government can't experiment by violating people's constitutional freedom. Right? So that was 1932. Two years later, in a case called Nebbia versus New York, the Supreme Court formally adopted the progressive approach to the Constitution. In Nebbia, the state made it illegal to charge less than eight cents a quart for milk therefore making it harder for poor mothers to buy milk to feed to their babies at the height of the Great Depression. Mr. Nebbia, a Rochester grocery store owner, charged less than eight cents a quart for milk. He was brought up on charges, went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can put him in jail for that because if the government wants to regulate the economy, it can do anything it wants to, almost. This was the birth of the so-called rational basis test. Anybody here tell me the rational basis test? I'll give you the first word, rationally related to a legitimate government interest. Rationally related to a legitimate government interest. Okay, here's the question of the day. What is a legitimate government interest? Anybody? Sure. Right. In 1987, in Nolan v. California Coastal Commission, the Supreme Court of the United States, on the 200th anniversary of the writing of the Constitution, Speaking through Justice Scalia said, our cases have not laid out the standards for determining what constitutes a legitimate government interest. Think about what that means. We don't know what government exists to do. And if we don't know what is a legitimate government interest, how do we know whether something is rationally related to it? Isn't that like having a great map to the wrong state? But that is the test that not only was it adopted in 1934, that is the test that is today applied in cases involving economic freedom and private property rights. The courts simply look the other way. There is no constitutional warrant whatsoever for the rational basis test that courts apply in these cases. Now, I was working on a case a few years ago uh, in, in California. My client was a guy named Alan Merrifield, ran a business as a pest control worker. He put up spikes on buildings to keep pigeons from landing on them. Right? You've seen these? Right? That's what he did. He didn't use pesticides. He didn't believe in pesticides. So he put up these spikes on buildings. But in California, if you're going to put up spikes on a building to keep pigeons from him, you have to first get a Branch 2 Structural Pest Control Operator's License. 
And to get a license, you have to spend two years learning how to use and store and handle pesticides and then pass a 200-question question multiple-choice exam on how to use and store and handle pesticides. Now, I've read this exam. I am under a court order not to divulge to you what's on that examination. But I will tell you what's not on that exam. There are no questions about pigeons, and there are no questions about spikes. Right? And it gets better because the law only applied if you were dealing with pigeons. If you put the same spikes on the same building to keep seagulls off, you didn't need any license at all. So I'm, I'm there in a deposition with the state's expert witness, the, the state's only witness. This is the guy who basically wrote the law. He's there under oath, and I'm asking him questions. I said to him, you need, to, you need to study for two years before you can put spikes on a building to keep pigeons off. He said, that's right. I said, but you don't need to study at all to put the same spikes on the same building to keep seagulls or starlings or sparrows off of that building. He said, that's right. I said, would you call this irrational? He said, yes, I would. And the government's lawyer says, can we take a break? <laughs> so we come back from the break, and he says, um... <clears throat> He says, I'd like to clarify what I said about irrational. I'm thinking, yeah, I bet you would, right? He says, what happened was they were originally they were going to get rid of the licensing requirement for people who didn't use pesticides. But those of us who already had licenses, we didn't want to face competition from newcomers. And so what we did, we went down to the state legislature and we said, look, why don't you divide up the market and let us keep the pigeons because they're the most common pest. And those guys can deal with, you know, the starlings or whatever, right? I'm thinking, tell me more, right? <laughs> Write this stuff down. And we go to court, and I said to the judge, I said, Your Honor, there, it is an unquestioned, undisputed material fact that this law does not protect the consumer. It is un undisputed in this case that this law only protects established businesses against fair competition by entrepreneurs like Alan Merrifield. And we lost. We lost because of the rational basis test. The court said, well, the state's justifications for the law make no sense, but I can make up my own. Now, imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine that that were the law in criminal law. Imagine you were brought up on a criminal charge, and the state failed to prove its case in prosecution, and the judge said, well, I can think of a way you might have been guilty. Right? That is the test that is applied when we are talking about the right to earn a living, a fundamental human right and a crucial part of what it means to, to live the American dream, to own a business, to run the business, to, to work for somebody for honest wages, to negotiate the terms of employment for yourself. And the problem with this, the problem with the rational basis test is it allows established companies to exploit the government to benefit themselves at the expense of precisely those people who need economic liberty the most. And I'm talking about the poor and members of minority groups. If there was one thing I could convince my liberal friends of, if I, if I, I wish... It would be that when you allow the government to redistribute wealth and opportunity, that power is going to fall into the hands of the most politically adept, not into the hands of the most morally deserving. Established businesses, big corporations, hate economic liberty. They do. They love the fact that they can use the government to exclude their own competitors. And unfortunately, under the rational basis test, courts allow that sort of thing to happen. So the bottom line that I would like to leave you with is that the most important thing we can do today is to reconsider the progressive assumptions that underlie our modern economic liberty jurisprudence. When we talk about the rational basis test, we're talking about a court looking the other way. I, I would say Justice, Lady Justice is blindfolded because she's using rational basis. I mean, whatever. You know. 
that's the approach courts use, and they use it because they have adopted these ideas that rights are just permissions government gives you, that, court, that legislatures should make society nice and redistribute wealth and opportunity, and that courts should look the other way. I, I urge courts and law professors and lawyers to reconsider those assumptions, and I think there's nothing better that American citizens could do as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Tim, for that spirited discussion of your book. And the book you will find to be as spirited. It is replete with cases of the kind that Tim mentioned uh, that will make your hair stand up and, one hopes, um, spur you to action, political, legal, or otherwise. We're now going to hear from David Bernstein, who is the foundation professor at the George Mason University School of Law, uh, where he's been teaching since 1995. He's also been a visiting professor at Georgetown University Law Center, the University of Michigan School of Law, and the Brooklyn Law School. David is a graduate of Brandeis and the Yale Law School. Uh, he's a national, nationally recognized expert on Daubert case uh, and admissibility of expert testimony. Uh, he's past chairperson of the Association of American Law School's evidence section, uh, he's co-author of uh, The New Wigmore, Expert Evidence, and co-editor of Phantom Risk, Scientific Inference, and the Law. Um, he's also an expert on the Lochner era. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be co-publishing with the University of Chicago his book, uh, Rehabilitating Lochner. Um, he, we published his book, uh, You Can't Say That, The Growing Threat to uh, Civil Liberties from Anti-Discrimination Law. Uh, he teaches products, liability, evidence, constitutional law, one and two, and expert in scientific evidence. Uh, please welcome David Bernstein. Uh, thanks, Roger. Um, I wanted to first start just by congratulating Tim on his book. Uh, it's a great book. It's a I told, him, uh, I told him before in the green room here that it's a worthy successor to Bernard Segan's book, uh, Economic Liberties and the Constitution, which was published in 1980 and really uh, led to all the scholarship, I think, that's come ever since on economic liberties issue. The difference is that while uh, Bernie, the late Bernie, who great guy, um, while he was writing the first book and therefore was doing it without the benefit of a lot of the research and whatnot that's come since, Tim has been able to uh, write a similar book, but with the benefit of 30 years of litigation from Pacific Legal Foundation IJ, 30 years of scholarship, and uh, 30 years of um, all sorts of other discussion of these issues, and therefore we've taken things uh, a good deal further than Professor Segan was able to. So I decided to talk – the book, by the way, even though it's called The Right to Earn a Living, is much more broad-ranging, which is why I say about economic liberties more generally. I really recommend it. I was trying to figure out what I should talk about today because there's so many interesting things that one could possibly discuss in the book. And I decided that uh, my added value here was going to be that in order to have, I think, a good and sensible discussion of economic liberty issues, you really need – to go back and revise the history that's been accepted for the last hundred years or so 
uh, ever since the progressives came to dominate the legal academy on what was going on uh, before the New Deal and what happened to it. So the progressives have their story, which is that economic liberty was this horrible thing, and Tim goes into some of that detail. And much of this history is actually uh, just wrong, tendentious at best, and wrong more often, I think. And I thought I'd talk specifically about Lochner versus New York, so that's the famous economic liberty case in 1905, where the Supreme Court held that a law limiting Baker's in New York to 60 hours a week per work was unconstitutional as a violation of liberty of contract. Uh, Lochner itself was not necessarily the most important case at the time, but it has come to be seen by the progressive-dominated historiography as the most important case in retrospect. When we talk about the pre-New Deal period of constitutional law, we talk about the Lochner era. Anytime anyone wants to protect any kind of economic liberty, uh, regardless of the source in the Constitution, uh, they're accused of being like Lochner. You're being like Lochner. Uh, You're being Lochnerian. That's bad. So the conventional account uh, of Lochner is, I think, something, the case itself is something that I thought I'd address. So the conventional story is that you have this reactionary Supreme Court that is upset that these poor, impoverished bakers have been able to win this meager legislative victory. They only, were only 60 hours. Uh, 60 hours, a lot of hours, and they, so they barely were able to uh, accomplish this. And here the reactionary court trying to protect the interests of corporations comes and says, oh, that's unconstitutional because we want, we're social Darwinists and we want to screw the little guy. So that, that is not really an exaggeration of the standard story that we've inherited uh, for the last hundred years or so. Uh, what we'll actually see, though, is that the Bakers Union promoted the hours legislation to drive small bake shops that enjoyed recent, Im- that employed, I should say, recent immigrants out of the industry, and also encouraged the selective enforcement of the law against non-union bakeries. The large bakeries were not on board with the Supreme Court's opinion. They liked the law because it helped exclude their competitors. Uh, the challenge, in fact, came from small mom-and-pop bakeries, uh, who are owned by usually by former bakers themselves, who had little more economic power than their employees. And if you tell a story like this, you typically get, oh, that's just a just-so story trying to support your libertarian ideology. It didn't really happen that way. Well, I've done a lot of research on this, and it didn't really happen that way, and I've brought some PowerPoint slides with the original sources I'm relying on, so no one can accuse me of just making this up. So we'll have those as our background information. So the baking industry in New York City in 1890 was very competitive. There were thousands of bakeries, um, ranging from large corporate-owned bakeries uh, to bakeries run by an owner who had no employees, self-operated bakeries. The small mom-and-pop bakeries tended to be operated in dank basements because that's a place where rents were cheap and you had you were able to hold a really heavy baking oven without worrying about the building collapsing. Uh, and these bakeries were very labor-intensive, and they required bakers to be on call for many hours a day because they, didn't, they weren't factories. There were no shifts. You put... You, you put the bread in the oven, then you took a nap. The bread was ready to come out of the oven, you took it out of the oven, you took a nap while you let it cool. So, in fear, so you were in the bakery maybe 16, 18 hours a day. Uh, if you have a law that says you're only allowed to work 10 hours, even though you're not actually working all 10 hours, that would prohibit you from doing that. Um, most of these small bakeries were owned by a hodgepodge of ethnic groups, French, Italian, Jewish, while the more established bakeries and the unionized bakers tended to come from a group of earlier German immigrants. The large bakeries were generally unionized, as I just mentioned, uh, and they also um, used modern factory equipment and had 10-hour shifts. 
the employees of these bakeries believed that their relatively favorable situation was endangered from small old-fashioned bakeries, especially those that employed uh, French, Italian, and Jewish bakers. The union had agitated for many years for a 10-hour law, uh, and they rec recognized that not only would this guarantee that their hours wouldn't go up, but more important, that these other bakeries, the way they were run, the way I mentioned in sh where there were no shifts, but you just had to hang around, this would put all these comp competing bakeries out of business. But they couldn't get the 10-hour law passed until an entrepreneur, an, a political entrepreneur named Henry Weissman came around, and he had the brilliant idea of connecting the less popular cause of hours laws to the more popular cause of of uh, sanitary reform. And by doing so, he was able to gain the support of industrial reformers who had little interest in labor union causes. So he wrote a letter to the muckraking New York press asking the newspaper to investigate the sanitary conditions in New York bakeries. The press was happy to oblige and published a lurid article by a man named Edward Marshall uh, about the sanitary conditions in basin bakeries. Similar stories were then published in other newspapers, and this gave legislative momentum to uh, sanitary reform. The union just hooked the 10-hour law onto the sanitary reform measures, and they, that was how the law came into being. Now, the bakery owners were not organized statewide at this time, and in any event, many of them supported the legislation. The large bakeries supported both the sanitary provisions and the 10-hour law because they already complied with it. Here's an owner of a large bakery saying, uh, the law does not affect us. We can see why it might affect the small bakeries, but who cares? But that, that's no, of no concern to us. There was a middle group of bakeries consisting of uh, non-unionized but non-basement bakeries, and they were concerned about all this muckraking stuff with the sanitation. They were afraid that women would stop baking their bread at home again. So they supported the sanitary provisions, uh, because they want to keep the reputation of bread up after all these muckraking articles come out. They don't seem to have really noticed the 10-hour provision at the time. Uh, so they weren't really, they didn't, but, um, and the smallest, the owners of the smallest, least capitalized bakeries, the recent immigrants, they were working 18, 20 hours a day, uh, and they didn't speak English very well, and they didn't seem to have any idea what was going on at the time. The, the, a few owners of the middling bakeries did, in fact, express some concern at the last minute. They sort of noticed this 10-hour provision. Wait a second. We thought this was about sanitation. Where did this 10-hour provision come in? And they said, maybe this is going to force our bakeries to either unionize or go out of business. So Weissman denied that this was the goal. Uh, we are not trying to help the unions. We're trying to really just protect health and sanitation. But one of his deputies did acknowledge to the New York Times that the law was aimed against the small and non-unionized bakeries and not the large and generally unionized bakeries. Another factor supporting the law was prejudice, again, this is from a factory inspector's report, prejudice against Jewish and Italian bakers, uh, that they were inherently unclean. I can never uh, look at this slide without having to mention that Jews have a tradition of 2,000 years or more of having to wash before meals when the Anglos, Saxons, and Teutons were all <laughs> barbarians in forests. <laughs> Soon after the law passed, <laughs> Some bakery owners became concerned that their, union, that their interests had not been represented. Uh, the law was skewed in favor of the union, and they formed a state master bakers association to make sure they have input on future legislation. Meanwhile, the more established bakery owners were, in fact, again, happy with the sanitary provisions on the, of the law because the cost fell on the least established and least sanitary, I have to admit, bakeries, and also encouraged people to... Uh, by store-bought bread. 
Even the Baker's Union Journal, and here's an excerpt from there, acknowledged that many bakery owners were cooperating with the law. Well, the tensions between the smaller and the larger bakeries started to come to a fore at the 1901 Bakery Owners Convention, where, as you can see from this slide, the convention attendees endorsed sanitary legislation, assumedly including New York's Bake Shop Act. The owners of the smaller bakeries tried to encourage the convention to oppose the 10-hour laws, but they failed to succeed. The following year, however, the owners of the smaller bakeries won control of the State Master Bakers Association, and the association resolved to challenge the law, leading to criticism by the large bakery owners, who, again, liked the law. The bakers behind the challenge were not, the, again, the smallest group, the, the newest immigrants who barely spoke English, but they were somewhat more established class of bakery owners, who, among other things, of course, had the time and resources to attend uh, state bakery conventions. They claimed that their primary objection to the 10-hour law was that it was being used as blackmail by the union. According to the bakery owners, first of all, there's sometimes you have to break down machinery. You have a big order coming up, your machines break down. You can't ask bakers to stay an extra hour or two even if you pay them overtime. Uh, and moreover, uh, sometimes you have huge holiday orders, whatever, there's necessity involved. Most hours laws, including hours laws that have been held, upheld by the Supreme Court, have provisions for overtime. This law didn't. I have some evidence that the bakery owners were correct in the fact that this, in their argument that this law was being used for blackmail and not really for the safety and health of the bakers themselves. What's my evidence? Unfortunately, I don't have this slide because uh, I couldn't find it. Uh, but I couldn't find the original source. But I do have a footnote uh, somewhere to the effect that I found, looking through old bakery union journals, that the bakery union itself would sometimes sign contracts after the law was passed providing for overtime. So they were, happy, they were happy to have their own members work for more than 10 hours if they got overtime, as long as no one else could do it. Uh, and since the factory inspectors were dominated by the union, one of the three inspectors charged with enforcing this law was indeed a union official, they didn't have to worry that their guys were going to get convicted of violating this law. They could just use the law as a bludgeon against uh, the non-unionized bakeries. Henry Weissman, meanwhile, switched sides after quitting the union and opening his own bakery, and he became... Uh, the attorney, he went to Brooklyn Law School and became the attorney who represented the bakery owners in their challenge to the 10-hour law. He pointed out uh, that the law only applied to certain kinds of bakeries, again, that it was being, that the union itself was willing to sign contracts for overtime and so forth and so on. And he also, I think very importantly, provided an appendix to his brief in which he, in which he showed data suggesting that bakeries employees were no less healthy than people like law clerks or other pretty mundane professions, and there was no, therefore, proper public health reason for limiting the hours of bakery employees, but not law clerks or machinists or secretaries or a whole bunch of other people. In Lochner itself, by the way, contrary to the way it's often portrayed as Lochner oppressing one of his workers, from what I could tell reading old newspapers in New York State, the guy who filed a complaint against Lochner was a baker named Ahmed Schmitter. He was an old friend of Lochner's. Uh, his friendship goes back to when he was a 20-year-old employee of Lochner living in Lochner's house. Lochner at that time had a unionized bakery. Uh, and the bakery union rule said you couldn't live in your employee's house. Schmitter wrote a letter to the union saying, I have nowhere else to live. 
my, I can't live with my parents, whatever reason. Uh, maybe they're abusive or whatever. And Lochner's offering me a place to live. Please relax your rule in this particular case. The union refused. And Lochner then refused to go along with the union. That was the beginning of a long-standing war between Lochner and the union. Schmitter opened his own bakery. It failed. He went back and worked for Lochner again. Lochner was active in the State Master Bakers Association. As near as I could tell, he and Schmitter decided, here's how we're going to challenge the law. The case was really a test case. It had nothing to do with anybody oppressing anybody. It was just a, a question of Schmitter and Lochner and the Bakers Association trying to challenge the law uh, in advance before the union could use it against Lochner. They'd already filed several complaints against him, and Lochner wanted to get rid of the law. So we see, contrary to the standard tale of big business versus oppressed workers, the law at issue in Lochner had a much more complicated lineup of friends and opponents. I think if you look at almost any of the cases from this period that are portrayed as being clearly pro-corporation or clearly pro-business, if you look more closely, you will find a much more complicated story. So the large bakeries were actually in favor of the law on the same side of the union. The middling bakers liked the sanitary provisions because they mostly applied to the even smaller bakeries uh, and also improved the reputation of bread. Uh, but they didn't like the fact that the hours law, in their view, was being used to blackmail them uh, when they refused to hire union workers or become union shops. And meanwhile, the interests of the German workers who dominated the union and supported the legislation diverged from the interests of the workers from other immigrant groups. So it wasn't workers versus big business. It was certain groups of workers against other workers, the unionized, established workers against newer immigrants, and big business against smaller business, to some extent against even smaller businesses. So, uh, and you have to wonder if the standard story, uh, and I think you're correct to wonder if the standard story we all know is true about Lochner is not true, what else uh, have the progressives and their successors distorted, and how much of our history that we've received is really accurate. Thank you. All right, now we're going to hear from our last speaker, Clark Neely, uh, who um, is with the Institute for Justice uh, as a senior attorney, which he joined in 2000. Uh, he litigates economic liberty, property rights, school choice, First Amendment, and other constitutional cases in both federal and state courts. Uh, Clark is um, a graduate of the University of Texas, both his undergraduate degree and his law degree. Uh, he clerked for um, Royce Lamberth on the uh, D.C. Circuit. Um, he um, uh, served as counsel uh, uh, in a successful challenge to Nevada's limousine licensing practices, which effectively prevented small business persons from operating their own limousine services in the Las Vegas area. He was the lead attorney in the Institute's successful defense of the Mackinac uh, Center for um, Public Policy against a lawsuit by the Michigan Education Association challenging the center's right uh, to quote the um, MEA's president in fundraising literature. And he's currently leading uh, the Institute for Justice opposition to a nationwide e uh, effort to ca uh, cartelize the interior design industry through unnecessary and unreasonable occupations uh, licensing. Uh, in his private capacity, Clark also served as co-counsel for plaintiffs in the District of Columbia v. Heller case, the historic case 
that found for the first time that under the Second Amendment there is an individual right to keep and bear arms. Please welcome Clark Neely. I'd like to thank Roger and the Cato Institute for inviting me to this event. Um, I'd like to thank Tim for a wonderful book, um, also for reminding me not to bring water to the podium. I'd like to not thank David for dimming the lights for the last 10 minutes, if you're still with us. I'll leave you my water there. <laughs> um, seriously, though, I, I, I hope that everybody in the room um, who's looking for something to read, or even if you're not, you'll, you'll get a hold of Tim's book and move it to the top of your reading list. Uh, it's not just about economic liberty. If you read even just the first two-thirds of this book, uh, you will really understand in a very, I think, profound and, and deep way much of what has gone so terribly, terribly, and tragically wrong uh, with the Supreme Court's standard of review and the extent to which the Supreme Court is supposed to, but no longer does, impose constitutional limits on government. So this book is really much more than about just economic liberty. It's, it's really, uh, in some ways, uh, an excellent treatise on the Supreme Court's wholesale abdication of responsibility when it comes to imposing constitutional limits on government. So I commend it to your attention for that reason as well. Um, if you're an American citizen, or maybe even more so if you're an aspiring American citizen, you know in your heart that economic liberty is at the very foundation of the American dream. Notwithstanding the damage that America's reputation has experienced abroad, I guarantee you that if you went into very, virtually any country in the world with a handful of green cards, you could give those away in seconds. Everybody wants to come to America, and that remains the case. Why? Because we are still perceived to be the land of opportunity. And we're perceived to be the land of opportunity because almost alone in the world, we continue to be relatively free of the kinds of corruption and red tape and burdensomeness that prevent people with vision, with energy, with drive, with great ideas from reaping the rewards to which they are entitled. But if you come to America, the perception is that you can still do that. And to an extent, it is true. It remains true. But not nearly to the extent that the framers of our Constitution intended and the text of the document that they bequeathed to us guarantees. Why? Because judges have abdicated their duty almost wholesale to protect the very thing at the heart of the American dream, and that is economic liberty. What I hope to do in the next 10 minutes is to transform everybody in this room into apostles for economic liberty, because you'll go out, you'll, you'll find that every Supreme Court justice, with the possible exception of one, nearly every federal judge, and virtually everybody working in constitutional to law today in academia will tell you that everything I just said is wrong. In fact, Roger, if you just put a couple more chairs up here, we could have probably gotten everybody in this room who believes in economic liberty is doing high-level constitutional law. But the good news is we're right, they're wrong, and I can prove it to you in about 10 minutes, I believe. So I hope everybody will leave this room not only inspired to be but equipped to be an apostle for liberty. Let me start off with a couple of concrete examples. Uh, basically, what I do at the Institute for Justice is I litigate economic liberty cases. I do this day in and day out. I want to tell you about two of those cases, and I want to play a little bit, a little game of make-believe. 
um, where you're going to be the government lawyers trying to dream up justifications for these laws. Um, uh, and, and I'm going to, well, actually, you know, that's not make-believe. That's the rational basis test. So we'll just do the rational basis test on these laws. Um, Louisiana, alone among the states, requires you to have a license to be a florist. So literally, if you take two flowers and put them together in an aesthetic way, and they're very serious about that. If it's just a not aesthetic way, then you're not a florist. But if you do it in a way that's meant to look pretty, then you're a florist, and you actually have to have a license from the state to do that. Can anybody think of a public policy justification? We all know. I mean, I don't see any infants in the room, so we all know why that law got on the books. It's to protect existing florists. But put on your uh, government lawyer cap for a moment. Can you dream up anybody? Just throw something out there. To protect what? All right, to protect mourners at funerals. So you could have like a, one of those big funeral sprays, and if it was put together by somebody who didn't know what they're doing, it could just spontaneously explode and people would be injured. And sure, we see that all the time, <laughs> right? So that's one example. Um, not to belabor the point, let me just uh, tell you what, what uh, uh, justifications were actually accepted by a federal judge sitting in Baton Rouge. Uh, he credited the state's assertion that it might be concerned about uh, little wires that they use to actually secure the stems of a bouquet, and that if that wasn't done properly, it could come undone and someone could prick their finger on it. Um, he also credited the state's assertion that one of its concerns might have been the possibility of infected dirt clinging to the stems of the flowers that are used in the arrangement. To this day, I don't know exactly what the dirt would be infected with, but I think we can all agree that the specter of infected dirt is one uh, to which the legislature should have the prerogative uh, of protecting us from. Um, all right, move on to one more case. I first became involved in the interior design effort, uh, and there really is a nationwide effort to cartelize the interior design industry, believe it or not. It's been going on for about three decades. I first got involved in that uh, in helping to challenge a law in Alabama that made it a crime for an unlicensed person to go into another person's home and recommend that they put throw pillows on a couch or a lighter shade of paint on the wall, because that's practicing interior design under the definition provided by the law and you have to have a license to do that. So one more time, can anybody put it on your rational basis? Anything goes, just throw something out there. How, how could you justify that law? That one's hard. That one's really hard. They couldn't do it. That law actually got struck down. Um, the government actually tried to backpedal and say, oh, no, that's, uh, they're, they're interpreting it too broadly. It doesn't really mean that. But the lawyer who actually challenged it um, in the trial court, uh, Institute for Justice came in and helped out on appeal with an amicus brief. But the lawyer who challenged in the trial court actually brought in the head of the interior design board who said, oh, no, that's definitely the way the law is written, and that's definitely how we enforce it. You can't go into somebody's house and tell them about throw pillows. Um, but we're actually involved in a, a challenge to Florida's interior design law um, in which the state has been adamant uh, that there are plenty of rational justifications for deciding or for dictating who can and cannot be um, an interior designer. Um, just to give you one example, um, like, Tim, I, I, I enjoy telling stories about things that have come up in depositions because it's really funny. Like, you literally couldn't make this up. Um, I was deposing the guy who had not only written Florida's interior design law, but that had then been hired by the state to interpret the interior design law to determine whether it applied to particular instances of conduct. He actually never found a single one that the law didn't apply to, just to give you an idea where he's coming from. But I asked him one time, I said, you know, I, um, so just so you know, the law, among other things, basically makes it a crime to make any drawing related to the interior elements of a building or space without a license. Now, just think how broad that is. And I said, you know, I just got back from a wedding in Mexico, and it was supposed to be on the beach, but then it started raining, so we had to move it inside. And the wedding coordinator made a sketch to show the caterer where to set up the tables inside. I said, um, now, that would be a violation of Florida's interior design law, right? And he looks at me and says, 
well, I don't know what the law is in Mexico. And I said, no, 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 I meant here in Florida. I'm, I'm asking you about the one you wrote for this state. And he said, well, it would be illegal. And I said, do you, do you think that, is, does that make sense to you? Does, do you think that's a legitimate thing for the government to be doing, telling wedding planners they can't make sketches for caterers? He said, well, you know, if you wanted to just trust your wedding planner to say where a table should go in, you know, the wedding, I was like, yeah, I'm very comfortable with that. <clears throat> All right, so we're up on appeal in the 11th Circuit. Uh, actually, that, the outcome of that case remains to be determined. Um, so it's fun to poke fun of these laws. It's fun to uh, ridicule the state for putting them on the books. I want to finish this part of the talk by telling you about a darker side of occupational licensing. I want to tell you about a client of mine named Sandy Meadows. Um, she was a client in the Louisiana Florist case. Uh, Sandy was a high school dropout from Mississippi. She was in her uh, mid-60s, and she was a widow. She had never worked outside of the home. She had no real vocational skills, and she didn't even have a high school degree. The one thing she did have, though, was the ability to make pretty-looking floral arrangements. In fact, she was good enough that she was the manager um, of the floral department at an Albertson's grocery store. Um, but the grocery store fired Sandy because the state came down on them and said, you have to have a licensed florist working in your floral department, and this woman is not licensed. And they couldn't afford to employ two florists, so they had to fire the one who wasn't licensed. Um, and Sandy couldn't find a job. And this was while I was representing her in this case. The last time I saw uh, Sandy, um, she was lying on a couch in about 100 degree temperature in Baton Rouge, on uh, about 98% humidity, outside of her apartment in a common area with no air conditioning. And the reason she had no air conditioning was because she was unable to power, pay her power bill because she had no money, um, not being employed. She just had gallbladder surgery, so she was literally stapled with surgical staples from here to here, lying on a couch in 100-degree weather, barely able to breathe. Um, I checked her into a, a Motel 6 so she could have some air conditioning. I went to the Piggly Wiggly grocery store and paid her utility bill so it could get turned back on. Um, I went and took care of my business with the state in the course of working on the case. And a few days later, Sandy died. And that's the last time I ever saw her. Sandy died because the state of Louisiana handed her economic liberty and put it in the hands of a bunch of special interests. Floral groups, or, or the, the, the Louisiana State Florist Association, a straight-up cartel, had gotten that law passed that said that a woman like Sandy Meadows can't make a living doing the one thing she knows how to do. That is absolutely disgraceful. It is reprehensible. And I hold them at fault, in part for her death, and I hold at fault the judge who rubber-stamped that law and said there didn't look like there was anything wrong to him uh, with that arrangement. And I will tell you, what the state of Louisiana did to Sandy Meadows the United States Supreme Court has done to the concept of economic liberty in this country by refusing to enforce constitutional limits on the kind of government power that I just described to you in Louisiana. I think that is atrocious, and I think it is a sellout of the American dream. Now, why am I confident that the Constitution protects economic liberty? Well, I think that's pretty easy. We can all start, I believe, with the basic premise that there are legitimate and illegitimate things for the government to do. Benefiting yourself. You voted me into office, so now I'm going to pass a law that says you have to pay me money that's going to go into a personal bank account, and then when I leave office, I'm taking it all with me. Just straight up enrichment. I basically think no serious person thinks that's a legitimate exercise of government power. And I also don't think it would be, I think we can all agree it's not a, a legitimate exercise of government power if instead of enriching me, I just pass the same law, but you enrich my brother-in-law, who happens to be a florist, or a carpenter, or a moving truck driver, whatever other profession you can think of. And the courts have a very, not only legitimate, 
but incredibly important role in policing the line between legitimate exercises of government power, actually trying to protect people from incompetent brain surgeons, for example, versus illegitimate exercises of government power, quote-unquote, protecting us from the horrors of unlicensed florists. And as I said before, you would have to be an infant to be unable to tell the difference, the fundamental conceptual difference between a law that licenses florists on the one hand and a law that licenses brain surgeons on the other. We can differ about whether the brain surgeon license is legitimate or even effective. I doubt it. But at least you can make a distinction. And, and we should, and the courts should make a distinction. Um, as, as Tim and David both explained to you already, the U.S. Supreme Court basically just made a mockery of that point and, in, in the New Deal and essentially said, okay, we used to be doing that. There was the Lochner era when we actually tried to engage and, and really make an actual good faith determination of whether the government is acting legitimately or illegitimately, but we're not in that business anymore. We're just not going to do it. Why? Well, let me read from a quote that Tim has in his book from Justice Holmes in the Lochner case in his dissent. Um, this is Justice Holmes describing what he perceives as the fundamental values of the Constitution. A Constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory, whether of paternalism and the organic relation of the citizen to the state or of laissez-faire. It is made for people of fundamentally differing views. What is that? That is moral relativism. It is a belief that our Constitution doesn't reflect any particular values. And who are the heirs of that moral relativism today? Who are the constitutional heirs of that relativism? Conservative minimalists, people like Judge Bork, most of the US Supreme Court, people who say that they look at the Constitution and just can't see that it stands for anything in particular when it comes to certain values like economic liberty. I think they're absolutely wrong. I think they're so far from being right that to just even invite one of them if they would ever show up at a symposium like this and have to sit in a room and listen to these kinds of talks, they would not be able to go back to their chambers and write something as moronic as I just read to you. And my hope is that by getting the word out about economic liberty, by turning all of you into apostles of liberty, we'll get to them one day. You need it, we need it, the country needs it. Thank you. Thank you, Clark. And let me remind you that the book is available for sale at a discount outside, and Tim will be happy to sign it for you when we break for lunch. Let's now turn to you, the audience, and uh, please uh, raise your hand if you have a question and identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have and to whom your question is directed. Uh, Ted Frank? Roger was kind enough to identify me, and uh, I think this is the first panel I've been to where uh, all the panelists are Facebook friends, so <laughs> <laughs> you, you know that, that my skepticism here is friendly, uh, but what I didn't hear was a limiting principle, and if we start from the premise that the founders rejected that the Article Three power, the judicial power, included a judicial veto, the question then becomes, how far do state laws police power, how far is a state government's police power go, and what level of scrutiny can be implied by judges uh, over the efficacy of laws without creating a judicial veto? And to give an example, 
the Wisconsin Supreme Court very dishonestly struck down a medical malpractice law on rational basis review using the sort of standard Clark proposes on the grounds that, well, some studies say that medical malpractice caps don't work, and we're going to agree with those studies and ignore the ones that, that support what the legislature did and strike down the law. I, I, I just would like to hear how the panel handles that sort of issue. Jim, you want to start on that? Uh, well, it's a big question. Obviously, there's got to be some limiting principle, but my concern here is more that we, in search of a limiting principle, what we've done is we've is we've allowed the judiciary to abdicate its role in protecting these liberties at all. Um, there's no constitutional warrant for separate standards of scrutiny to begin with. Of rational basis applies sometimes, and higher scrutiny applies other times, and so forth. This was a political invention designed to rationalize the New Deal, and there is no justification for it either in the Constitution or in the founding era documents explaining the po- role of the Constitution. When you re- then, when we flash forward to 1868 and the ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, the 14th Amendment was clearly intended, and all of the debates surrounding its adoption in, in the Congressional Globe make clear that it was intended to federalize protections for civil rights throughout the states and to give citizens of states a federal avenue for protection against state legislatures that would violate those rights. So when you speak about the Article Three not allowing for a judicial veto – of course, that's true, but it's also true that the 14th Amendment was intended to expand judicial protection for uh, economic liberties. Now, where should the, the, uh, where should the line be drawn? I'm unfamiliar with the case that you're talking about, but I would say that, that I would much prefer for courts to every now and then strike down too many laws than for courts to strike down no laws at all. When we, we always talk about judicial overreaching and the, the expanding power of the judiciary and everything, when in fact it's the legislature that we have most to fear from. It's legislatures in this country that every day ignore and violate individual rights, whose members pay virtually no attention to the Constitution either of the United States or of their state, who pass laws simply because they think it'll make them popular, and who, like, like Nancy Pelosi when she was asked about the constitutional basis for Obamacare, responded, are you kidding? That's the approach that many elected officials take. In addition to which, many of the laws, in fact, most of the laws that affect us on a daily basis aren't even written by elected officials, but are written by hired and appointed people in, who serve in administrative capacities and don't even, can't even be fired in many cases. So I am much less concerned, at least at present, with judicial overreaching than with judicial abdication. As far as how the case you're talking about should come out, I, I don't know about a case like that. But I do know that courts ought to approach with a skeptical eye all limits on individual economic liberty. I, let me just add a couple points if I can. I have read that case. And one thing I think is important to realize about that case is it's a bit of a stretch to say it involved any particular constitutional right. At issue in that case was a package of tort reform measures that the state of Wisconsin had passed that included damages caps and so forth and so on. So the idea you can go into court and say, I have a constitutional right to recover more than $500,000 for non-economic injury, it just does, it's a stretch. 
Um, so I agree with Tim that that the real danger, if you, I mean, if you look at the way the Constitution is written and then look at the way government operates, if you had to choose, which are we more endangered by judicial activism or judicial abdication? To me, that's a no-brainer. Um, the, the look at the federal government. I mean, the idea that we still have a federal government of enumerated powers is a fantasy, and the idea that we have been more harmed by too much judicial activism as opposed to the court just sitting on the sidelines and letting the federal government run up a twelve trillion dollar debt is just I think it's nonsensical so if you just as a prudential matter if you had to pick a more engaged or a less engaged judiciary I think as a prudential matter it's an easy choice um, the other point I would make is I agree with you that, that the majority of, of the Wisconsin Supreme Court in that case was acting in an intellectually dishonest fashion but do you really think you're going to solve that by changing the standard of review basically you've got I forget how many I think it was Four, I think there are seven justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. If you got four of them that want to write their own laws and they have the power to do that, whether legitimately conferred upon them or not, they're going to do it. So there has to be a resort to some other mechanism for controlling that behavior. Because that's just, that's just, that is, that's just judicial lawlessness and they're making stuff up. But that doesn't have anything to do with the constitutional standard review. Those people are going to do that in any case, no matter what you told them, in my opinion. Let me add just one very short point, which is that uh, I think we need, and uh, I'm not, I don't generally express any particular – I have very mixed views about exactly what I think the courts should be doing now, but the courts are not the only ones charged with enforcing the Constitution. The state legislatures, Congress, etc., all these folks, uh, the executive branches of state and federal governments, they all take oaths to enforce the Constitution. And regardless of what one thinks about the role of the judiciary in enforcing these matters and how active they should be, the legislators and presidents and governors themselves have an obligation to consider these issues. And if one creates a culture of economic liberty uh, where these issues are considered important and important liberty rights under the 14th Amendment or under other provisions of the Constitution, then the legislatures will consider them. I mean, there are a lot of laws that could come up restricting freedom of speech, but everyone understands that regardless of what the courts would do, we don't want to necessarily ban flag burning or whatever. I mean, the people, a lot of Republicans did want to do that, but there are a lot of Democrats who said, you know, or a lot of other people who said, we don't want to ban flag burning, even if the courts let us do it. So even if you think the courts should be restrained about protecting economic liberty, if uh, the public starts to think it's an important right and say, hey, we shouldn't stop people from being florists, that will happen. And you know, the IJ, just for example, has been very effective in getting publicity for a lot of its cases, even when they lose in court. Once people actually pay attention to these things, they say, well, that's terrible, and the laws get repealed. Uh, yes, all the way in the back there, please. Thanks, uh, JP, for uh, with the Washington Examiner, and I think I only have one out of the four on, on Facebook. Um, but uh, no, 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 it's Clark. Uh, what I was what I was curious about was the um, and and Ted actually. Uh, what I was curious about was you talk about how judicial activism isn't that much of a problem. I get that. I, bu I, buy, I buy your point. But on the other hand, judicial activism can go so far as to create new legislative problems, so that they are sort of creating their own laws. So just wondering if you could go at it from that. Certainly. No, I, and I don't mean to say that obviously judges shouldn't, be, shouldn't exercise power without control. The oldest principle, the most fundamental principle of the entire Anglo-American common law tradition is nobody should be a judge in his own case. And what we have with judicial restraint or judicial act, abdication is legislatures are being judges in their own case. They're allowed to decide 
how ex- extensive their power is, and then exercise that power with, with in, in the economic liberty realm, virtually no oversight at all. So I, I absolutely, judges should be subject to, to limitations as well as legislatures. Um, but I think that on, on the whole, I, I wrote an article some time ago called um, The Wolves and the Sheep of Constitutional Law about, about the, the arguments about judicial activism and everything. And on the whole, I think that, we have, that judicial activism is much less to be feared than, judicial, uh, than legislative activism. For one re- thing, when a court is wrong, at least it gives you a reason. Right? It'll give you some explanation of its decision, even if it's wrong, whereas legislatures are free to make, uh, make things up later. And, in, and in, in courts of law, not only do they, can they make things up later when their laws are challenged in court, but the judges make something up on their own. I mentioned the Merrifield case, where, uh, my pigeon case. We actually got that. We actually won that case on appeal. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said states are not allowed to use their occupational licensing laws simply for protectionist purposes. But we had to go on appeal because the judge, the trial judge in that case, came up with his own rationalization for the law. Now, you know, that is simply too much authority being vested in legislatures. That's why I say I'm more concerned about them than, than with judges. All right. Next question. Uh, right here, uh, Adam Paul. It, it is actually working now. It takes a while. <laughs> Um, Adam Powell from the University of Southern California. Uh, Mr. Sandiford, does, to what extent does uh, your book discuss the changes since the Lochner era being a result of deliberate action or of uh, lack of information or debate? Uh, lack of information meaning, I'm sorry, do you mean like voters' ignorance or? Yeah. Well, I I discuss uh, the 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 in the book I discuss the progressive movement in in broad terms, but I think that what I think what happened was you know a lot of the time his, in retrospect it, the the scheme is distorted and we say well the Supreme Court became so much more activist in the mid nineteenth century and or in the late nineteenth century rather and by the by the early twentieth century the courts were imp- imposing their own will and so forth and the reason for that was because at the end of the Civil War. We have the 14th Amendment passed in the first place, which means court, federal courts are going to start reviewing state legislation more than they were before. And you find an explosion in things like state licensing laws. Uh, Lawrence Friedman makes this point in History of American Law, that at the end of the Civil War, you see this explosion of, of rent-seeking in state legislatures. And this, is, this both feeds into and, is, and comes out of the progressive attempt to expand the role of the government. And, in, and of course, I guess at that time, a lot of the economic phenomena that we now understand very well about rent-seeking was not as well understood and so forth. Um, so I do think that some of this was the result of legislative ignorance, um, but I think more of it, it's traceable just to the energies of state legislatures turning toward regulating the economy in a much more expanded way than it ever was before, with at the same time the 14th Amendment allowing federal courts more oversight in that regard. So what you're saying that is that if you have a much more active legislative branch, it follows that you're going to have many more cases getting into court right. and therefore seemingly an activist, but really an act more active right. judiciary simply because they're being called upon to decide more and more cases. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, right here, this gentleman. Uh, 
Uh, hi, I'm Mark Granis. A lot of people who are interested in trying to sort of turn the tide on this would be focusing for federal purposes on the Commerce Clause. And if you sort of reinvigorated some sense of limitation in the Commerce Clause, uh, then you would take care of a lot of these problems. But it occurs to me that would have nothing to do with state regulations like some of the ones that we're talking about. Your approach seems to be to reinvigorate the concept of economic liberty and to use due process as a way of... Um, uh, as a way of sticking up for economic liberty, but of course, then that seems to have the consequence that there's no difference in federal court between a state law regulating these things and a congressional enactment that regulates the same things, which seems a little bit odd in light of our, our state and federal structure. So I guess I was, I was hoping you could comment on the consequences for what you're saying today with our traditional, uh, what, what it means for our traditional notions of federalism and, and uh, the notion that the federal government is more strictly limited than the states are in this area. It's certainly true that the federal government is a government of enumerated powers, and states are, are governments of residual sovereignty, and that makes a difference. Uh, I think that the 14th Amendment was written to try and put some definition in what is and is not within the legitimate realm of state power, and to do so explicitly on the basis of the classical liberal tradition of the American founding. I mean, if you read the history of the authorship of the 14th Amendment, they were speaking in terms that drawn directly from the Declaration of Independence and principles of limited government and individual rights. Um, as far as, as what the effect that would have on federalism, federalism was dramatically altered by the authoring and, and, the, and the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And then that alteration was then unconstitutionally uh, uh, deflated by the decision in the slaughterhouse cases. That, if you want to use the word activist, what happened there was that a, a court that was devoted to preserving the pre-Civil War Federalist scheme, a scheme that had been tried and, and we had seen the fruits of it and we had rejected it in the process of the Civil War, um, that this scheme was then preserved against the will of the American people as expressed through the 14th Amendment in the slaughterhouse cases. So we, I, hear, I hear this when I give speeches. A lot of people say, well, you want to overturn, want to restore the Privileges or Immunities Clause and overturn a century of, of case law. No, it's not a century of case law. It's one case. It's the slaughterhouse cases, right? Which was wrongly decided. And, which, and, and so when we talk about radical changes in the Federalist system, I don't think you would see radical changes in the Federalist system. What you would see is the actual enforcement of the language of the 14th Amendment, which was ratified by the American people. Clark, I'm sure you want to weigh in. Let me, if I could just give a couple of concrete examples. So would it be a legitimate exercise of state governmental power to, for, to refuse to prosecute people who had hung a person from a tree without any process at all uh, because that person wasn't getting along with the economic program? The answer is obviously no, but before the Civil War, the answer wasn't so clear. And that happened after the Civil War, as most of the people in this room know. Would it be a legitimate exercise of state power to disarm entire groups of people to make it easier to hang them from trees, which was also going on in the South after the Civil War? The answer is no. Would it be legitimate to require an entire class of people to have uh, a note from their employer before they're allowed to get off of the company property so they can go look for better economic opportunities? The answer, again, is no. But all of those things were going on in the wake of the Civil War, and the 14th Amendment was ratified with the express purpose of empowering the federal government to put an end to that kind of Southern tyranny. And what's frustrating sometimes from this perspective is, is when conservatives uh, who describe themselves as judicial minimalists and 
and talk about their modesty, refused to embrace the true meaning of the 14th Amendment and recognize that it was absolutely intended to achieve a revolution in federalism. The only reason there's any doubt about it is because the Supreme Court has been so dishonest in refusing to acknowledge that fact from the very first time it encountered it in Slaughterhouse until today. David? Yeah, you know, um, people often say that, well, at a time when the court was enforcing the due process clause on economic issues strictly and the commerce clause before the New Deal, that you couldn't regulate with regard to the state legislatures and Congress couldn't do either. And so we just, it's all the Lochner era. We'll just lump all these things together. And that's not even true, really, even putting aside the philosophical issues, even what actually happened. Just to give you one example, people often say, well, no one was allowed to regulate child labor. Well, yes, they were. When child labor came before the Supreme Court, when it was an issue of state regulation of child labor, the Supreme Court held 9-0 to zero that the states were within their police power protecting minor children from uh, having to uh, work, too, uh, I think it was in that case, work too many hours, but clearly would have upheld any kind of regulation that was reasonable of child labor. When it came to the issue of whether the federal government could regulate child labor, five justices said that was beyond the commerce power. I can easily imagine many other examples today where a reinvigorated Commerce Clause would prohibit the federal government from regulating something, but would not prohibit the states from using their police power to regulate that. Intrastate growing and distribution of marijuana, I think, would be easily regulable under the police power, even if I might disagree with it. Uh, but it would clearly not be regulable under the Commerce Clause. And for those of you who want some interesting nostalgia, if you go back and look at the movie Reefer Madness, the famous movie from the 30s, uh, the parents of the kids who are going nuts because they're using marijuana go to the local U.S. Attorney's Office and say, can't you do something about this horrible plague of marijuana? And the U.S. Attorney says, this marijuana is all being grown in state. Federal government has no power over it. <laughs> well, some of us might take exception, David, to your contention that it, it, it's regulable under the police power <laughs> since there are no rights that are violated that are to be protected by the police power. But that's a discussion for another day. Uh, we need to bring this to a close uh, because we're out of time now. Uh, sir, I would recommend to you uh, Richard Epstein's book, How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution, uh, which Cato published also, and that discusses your question systematically, first with respect to powers and federalism, secondly with respect to rights and the role of the states. Um, now, again, uh, the book is available. Tim will be glad to sign it for you. Uh, let's have a warm round of applause for our speaker. <laughs>